Acts chapter 4, from verse 32, we'll read to the end of the chapter. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Amen. My main idea, when individual members make personal sacrifices to make the whole stronger, the group is positioned to produce and influence. I say this first in the context of the church, but I don't leave it only there. I believe this is a true statement in your families, in your workplaces, in the circles that you find yourself that whatever group you are in, when the individual members of that entity, that body, that organization, that community, that group of people, when they make personal sacrifices to make the whole group stronger, that group in itself is positioned to be very productive and to be very influential. It is a truth that will stand. That when a group of people will say to themselves, we will help one another, support one another, be there for one another, and really stand hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, that group becomes stronger than the collective strength of each individual member. Something happens in there, and there's a word that is thrown around in in years past. They call it synergy, right? That the, the sum of the parts is not equal to the whole when you consider synergy. Just because you have the talent of one person, and a second person, and a third person, you had all three people do work, and then they come together and submit their work, all right, you got one person plus two people plus three people. But then you get the three of them together and you say, would you work together to produce something for this? What comes out of that meeting of three when they work together is greater than the sum of the three if they were to work separately. That's what synergy is all about. And so the dynamics of a group is that when the members sacrifice for the whole, there is something greater that comes out of that. But let me be honest, this passage of Scripture in Acts 4, this is a difficult passage of Scripture to take at face value and to apply to our lives. Now, if I were to come to you and say, okay, uh, tell me exactly everything that you own, <laughs> everything that has your name on it, you have a title for it, right? And if, if it were to be that every single person here would sell all of their possessions, put it into a central pot, then to be distributed to those in need, we would be termed a cult, right? That's exactly what it would be, right? Because you don't see that. And if they were to do that, like I said, we look at that with a, 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 a picture of extremism and we say to ourselves, something is wrong and unhealthy with that. That is cultic practice right there. 
And so what do we see in this passage? That the believers of the first century church, they were saying to themselves, you know what, I, we're a part of this new Christian group that is forming, and we see the faith of the apostles that believed in Jesus, and we hear the message, we see lives being transformed, people being healed, and something is happening amongst us. And they believed it, and as they believed it, they began to develop a community amongst the believers. And not just a gathering of people. It's not just a club that forms under a particular name or interest. We're talking about a group of people that were able to say, all that I have and own, I am willing to let go, to sell, and to present it to the group so that there is not a need amongst us. Can you see the power in that? Can you see the depth of faith and commitment amongst the the, the membership here? And if that were to happen in our lives, if you have a family, you have parents and children or siblings, you have a work environment where people said to themselves, it is not about my individual achievement or possession, but I am willing to sacrifice that and bring it to the whole so that everybody benefits. And if every single party in that family or business adventure were able to to do that, can you imagine the strength that comes out of that? What sucks the life out of a group? It is when members live for themselves. When you begin to be a part of a group and you see people saying, they're just trying to corner off stuff for themselves. They're just trying to protect and isolate what they have so they don't lose it. And that creates a message to the rest of the group that you better fight for what you have or you're going to lose it. And suddenly what happens in the group dynamic is a bunch of isolationists and people just fighting for themselves. That will eat away and destroy a group at its very core. That group cannot stand and cannot achieve anything. That the success of a group will always be determined by the collective commitment, by the sacrifices of of the members to the whole. And we see that here in this passage. These believers were selling their houses. I mean, what's the American dream? If you break it down, you really you, you say to anybody uh, around the world about an American dream, or you talk to an American, it really is home ownership, isn't it? If you break it down, think about HGTV and why people love watching that particular network. I mean, people are renovating houses, and, and you see the beautiful interior and the yards and the front door, and, and you're like, oh, I want a home like that. I want to live in a neighborhood like that. And the, the American dream is to have a home, home, home ownership. And what's happening here is that these folks were saying, you know what, I know I own this land or I own this house, but I am willing, as I see the need of my brothers and sisters who I had just met maybe weeks ago, I am willing to sell that for the group. I mean, sometimes we might live in a day and age where it's hard to give $5 to a friend. But what we're talking about here is the things that were the most valuable, the things that were the most dear to people, those weren't even off limits to the early believers. And so that's why I say this passage of Scripture, when held at face value and tried to apply to our lives, is very, very difficult. It's difficult. 
If we were to say, you know, if you own a car, would you be able to submit your car to a group ride-sharing thing and just allow people to rotate to use that car once a week and you take bus, uh, a bus six days out of the week and you, you just take advantage of it one day out of the week? Would we be able to have a group of people that live like that? Would we be able to, to sell and share what we own or possess, the things that are closest and dearest? Because we see the needs of the people that share the same faith as us. That is a difficult proposition, but I read it to say that this is a part, the heart of it I'm speaking of, is something that we must not say is distant from our lives. That We need to embrace the attitude and the values that the, these first century Christians took to and say, how can I apply this to my life? Now, we have warm, fuzzy feelings when we think about Christian unity, don't we? I mean, there are verses. I'll give you a couple. Romans 15, 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Now, this can preach, of course, right? To be of the same mind. And you think of Christian unity, people gathered together in worship, just uh, encouraging and admonishing one another, lifting each other up. And we think, yeah, that's exactly what the church should look like. And another passage is Philippians 1.27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, Paul was saying to the Philippian church, so that when, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Again, a beautiful picture, something that we want to strive towards, being united in spirit and in mind, that our efforts are not scattered, but they're cohesive and together because what we're fighting for, what we're working for is worthy of that unity, that togetherness, and it's for the faith of the gospel. But our passage tangibly demonstrates the two verses that I gave to you, doesn't it? Because in verse 32 of our passage, right, Acts 4.32, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. What does it mean to be of one heart and soul according to our passage? According to our passage, what it means to be one heart and one soul means that no one claimed personal ownership of stuff, right? That they considered all things common property, that there was not a needy person among them, that they were selling personal land and houses and donating the proceeds. That to be one spirit, one mind, one heart, one soul, tangibly lived out, looked like that in the first century. That it was more than just kind of encouraging one another, gathering together in united worship. It was about considering the needs of the person. It was about going layers deeper into their lives, not just when they gathered in prayer meetings or in worship gatherings and saying, hey, we're united and we're singing together, we're singing on the same chord or key, right? It was beyond that. It was about saying, I see you where you're at. And when you came here, it's more than you singing and us being gathered. I see your life, what you are a part of before you came here. And I see the need that you have. And as we gather in worship, which is great, but the unity must go beyond the gathering of worship and in prayer. And it must stretch into the home, into the livelihood, into the family life of the individual members. And that's what these believers believe to be of one mind and heart, of one soul, of one spirit. 
That solidarity was not confined to a sanctuary. Solidarity was about unity and living, understanding that your hurt is my hurt, my hurt is your hurt, that when one hurts, all hurt. This was community in the first century church. Is this a foreign concept today? Especially when we live so isolated, right? That we can gather in groups and we share a part of our lives when we gather, but then we go back to our little cave, we go back to our secluded places, and we live isolated. And we're able to to shelter and, and hide the aspects of our lives so easily from the people that we gather with on a weekly basis. Is this a foreign concept in our faith today? That the faith of the first century believers was immense. And effectively what happened is they changed the dominant pronoun, right? They changed the pronoun from me to us and from my and mine to our and ours. That it, it wasn't about me, it was about us. It wasn't about my house, it was about our houses. It wasn't what I said, this is mine. I said, no, wait, this is ours. And so they changed the pronoun in their hearts and minds. And to tell you the truth, this is not an easy proposition, right? To change this pronoun. I mean, you just gather with a group of kids for five minutes and soon you, you hear the word mine, 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 like a, burnt, a bunch of chirping birds, right? I mean, kids believe as soon as it's in my hand, it's mine, right? But we don't graduate out of this all too easily in adulthood, do we? That we'll fight for what we believe is my office or my space or my position, my possession. And it doesn't take too long for us to believe that it's mine and to fight for it like it's mine. And what was happening in the first century was they weren't saying the me, the my, the mine. They were saying the us, the our, the ours. This is our property. This is our problem. This is our need. And there was a a desire for the members to be able to look at the whole and say that takes precedent and I give that the priority over the individual. And so I share two points. First being this. Following Jesus teaches us to think about us before me. Now notice I didn't say to think about us, not me. That to be a Christian doesn't mean that you don't think about yourself. That's wrong, right? It doesn't mean, oh, I don't care what happens to me. I'm just going to think about us, right? That's not it. And so it's not about not thinking about me, but it's about progression, priority. That it teaches us to think about us before me. So I'm still thinking about me, but I'm including me in the us and allowing the me in the us be the first thought. Think about how Jesus taught the early disciples how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it goes on, right? Give us this day our daily bread. And right in that prayer, you see that. that He's not saying, please, you starve so that these people eat. No, but when you pray, pray for your collective bread, your collective hunger to be fed. Give us this day our daily bread. And when he teaches of the great commandment and someone comes up to Jesus, Lord, what's the greatest commandment in, uh, that, that, that we're, we're to follow in Jesus? You know, love God with all that you have, all of your strength, your heart, your soul, your mind. And then the second is like it, that it needs to be a package. You love your neighbor as yourself. 
And here you see that as well, right? Like, it's not about neglecting myself. That Of course, we are to love ourselves. And Jesus knows that. That you, you should love yourself. That how God made you. You should love the security, the protecting of yourself. You should love feeding yourself. You should love providing for yourself. You should love that your body is healthy, that your mind and spirit is healthy. But I want you to love your neighbor as... You see something equated there, right? The hierarchy wasn't about us, me, and them, or them and me. That it was about as. In the same vein, like. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's the inclusion of me in the us. Think about this before you think about me only. You think about us. That is this the dominant pronoun that you live by? that you align your decisions and activities against. And when you think about the, the position, when you think about the action, when you think about the repercussions, are you thinking us before me? Then what is the dominant pronoun that you live by? Following Jesus teaches us to think about us. That sacrificial community is a part of the church. Mutual awareness, mutual support. And so these believers are laying the proceeds down in front of the apostles' feet. Now that takes great trust too, right? Like you you sell your home and your land, that's what you had, and you bring it to some leaders of, uh, of the church and you say, here it is, however you see fit, would you distribute it? I mean, that that demonstrates a lot of trust that they had in the apostles. But the mindset of the early church was this. Bless the church, not be blessed by it. Now, doesn't that go against the verbiage that we so often hear when we come away from a church service? Oh, I was blessed. You know, someone, how was church? I was blessed, right? And the mentality is that I go to church to be blessed, is the the general undergirding belief that we have, that we hold when we come to a spiritual gathering, that I go there to be blessed. But the the mantra of the early church was not that I go there to be blessed. The mantra was I go there to bless. It flips everything upside down. It it really does. And it goes away uh, against the consumer-oriented mentality that so dominates the church And it says that we go to be investors, not consumers. I go to give, not to receive. I want to bless, not be blessed by. I want to serve, not be served. Second, collective buy-in is more powerful than individual effort. The church exploded in the, in the, in the first century. It, it did. There, there was nothing on earth that could stop the church from growing. Nothing, right? And so it exploded. And why did it explode? Yes, leadership was strong. But there was something powerful that happened. It, it was a collision of two things. It was passionate leadership and committed membership. And when these two things collided in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, when the apostles, they, they, they knew of the resurrection of Christ and the mission that he, he had given to them, and they were committed and passionate for that, that goal, that ministry, and when they met a membership, that was 
committed to that. Something exploded out of there. Because isolated individual success, yes, it can be wildly successful, but it will always be short-lived. Individual success. Individual success can be greatly successful, but it will be short-lived because it is usually one generational. It dies with that person. You've seen extremely uh, strong leadership lead a corporation or an entity, and suddenly when that person retires or dies, it falls apart. Because it was one individual that was strong. It was one individual that had a great vision. But when that person passed or left or something happened, everything crumbled. And so individual success can be wildly successful, but it rarely lives on past one generation. That if we want something to have wide-reaching success, to be truly successful, to be long-lasting, it must have a wide base of buy-in. It must move from strong leadership to empowered membership. It must go there. You all know this brand, right? Toyota, right? Maybe half of us drive a Toyota or a Lexus or a Scion, right? I mean, if you think about it, over the last decade, this brand has garnered a great reputation. You just visit Kelly Blue Book and you'll find this. You go to Craigslist and you find this. Why? The resale value for a Toyota vehicle is off the charts. It, it tops the charts time and time again, year after year. The Toyota has a reputation of high value and high resale value as well. That it's a trustworthy vehicle. It doesn't break down. The mechanic that I go to all of the time when I drove a... Sorry to say it, David. I'm I'm sorry, okay? He he would say... When we had the VW Passat, he would hammer me for that car. He goes, man, when are you going to get rid of this junk, right? And for some reason, he said to me that it's just... You know, it's expensive. Like, just for whatever it breaks down. You should get a Toyota, he said to me, right? And so mechanics... (laughs) The mechanics that want you not to spend too much money or who are your friends, they will tell you, you know, you should get a reliable vehicle. And Toyota always ranks high in that category of reliability. Years ago, many, many accredited to this. You might have heard of this, right? Years ago, they implemented a particular protocol. And they called it Stop the Line Manufacturing. Basically, what they did was anybody on the assembly line, when they saw a defect, had a responsibility to push a big red button and to stop and halt everything. Now, at the time, it went against the mantra of manufacturing. Because the dogma was, you keep the line running for as many hours a day as possible to maximize output. That was the mantra of manufacturing when this was implemented. And so this really went against the grain. It rubbed people the wrong way. But this was implemented not only for quality control, because in the end it saved money. If you can catch it at the beginning before the consumer has it, you don't have to recall it, right? And so not only did it save in the bottom line and increase the quality of production, it did something that was unthinkable. You know what that was? Empower the employee. And suddenly you had manufacturers, you had the engineers and designers all buy into something that we are not just producing good cars, we are manufacturing the absolute best. 
And when you had this collective buy-in from the top CEO to the assembly line worker who's just installing that cable from that place to there, you know, that all of them believe the same thing, that we are creating the best vehicles, the most reliable vehicles. And you had the buy-in from the top all the way to the bottom. Something happened in the company and it took off. And year after year, they're the top manufacturing car company in the world. The 2015 numbers is they sold over 10 million vehicles that year. And so year after year, they're selling the most vehicles because the public, according to their experience, are buying them because it's worth buying. And how did that all begin? Many trace it back to this. And so collective buy-in is much more powerful than individual effort. It's more than just a, a, a manager on the manufacturing floor saying, you know what, I got some vision here, and so, okay, you do that. I see that that's wrong, and so you, you do that. Right? It's more than one guy, one gal, pointing for everything to be done who's got the great vision for it. But it's about the individuals there saying, you know, from my vantage point, I see this, and buying into a larger vision. That successful professional athletics teams, whether it be in the realm of basketball or hockey or you can go to gymnastics or anything, that it's more than having a strong key player or a great coach, that it's about the collective environment of the team. And when each buy into it, something great happens. And that's what we see here in the book of Acts. What we see emerging in the first century church is nothing short of extraordinary. To be able to convince, to be able to persuade, or to be able to teach a forming group of thousands upon thousands of individuals to say, we is more important than me. And then to put their houses on the line for it. That's a miracle. It's no reason why the church exploded from 12 or 70 or the ingathering. It's no reason that thousands upon thousands were being added daily to the number. That miracles were happening. Because they believed in something. And when we begin to believe in something and put our necks on the line for that something... Miracles do happen. And so I finish. As I hope the faith of this passage is applicable to you as an individual and to us as a church and to the circles that you are a part of. This is what I'd like to say as the praise team comes back. That our individual contribution is unique that what I give is uniquely what I can give, that I have a unique set of talents and resources, that if I don't give it, the whole lacks something. It is exactly the jigsaw puzzle. You've all done that, right? And you, you finish it, it's that dreaded last piece. Where did it go? And you're like turning over the entire house to find that last piece because there's only one piece that fits in that space. And unless that piece, you find it, it's incomplete, right? And so our contribution is unique in that way, that there is a unique dynamic in combination to who we are. That if I don't contribute what I possess, that the whole lacks something. That's first. Second is that my contribution is volitional. 
There's nothing mandatory about giving. There's nothing coercive about it, that it's voluntary. That by volition, by my own goodwill, I choose to give. And that's where we see power come out of. Not out of dictatorship where one person says you must or you will die or you will face these repercussions. But when from the bottom there's a swell upward, say we choose to give. That's when something powerful happens. And lastly, my contribution is valuable. That it is worthy. That when I give, something powerful and dynamic begins to happen in the group. And so as you consider our church, as you consider your families, as you consider your circles, just know that you are unique, that you must volunteer that goodwill, and that you are valuable when you contribute. And as we do that as a community, something beautiful comes out of that. Let that be a picture, Acts 4, the passage we read of our church this year. Amen? Amen.